Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. Co-host extraordinaire Shannon Bond is on maternity leave. Here in her stead, in her place, in her loo, is Matt Klein, my colleague on Alphaville. Matt, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Uh, Okay, so Matt, uh, we have some housekeeping items before we get to today's show. First of all, uh, we're not going to flog Camp Alphaville again quite like we did last week, but we do want to say that if you listen to next week's Alpha Chat, and pay attention about halfway through. We're going to drop a discount code so you can attend Camp Alphaville in London on July 1st for a big discount. All right. That's right. But, of course, you have to you know listen the whole of next week's episode because you, know, you might not be able to get it right at the beginning. And you, know, you might even have to come in the following week to make sure you actually get the right discount code. That's right. You know, who knows if it'll still work by then. That's right. Uh, separately, Matt, I had this 100-minute that's an hour and 40-minute chat with Paul Volcker. It's on our sister podcast, Alpha Chatterbox. We cover so much of his life, um, his early career, his early influences, his underappreciated role in Bretton Woods. We talk about, obviously, his time as Fed chair and what he thinks about more contemporary issues. Uh, so let me just ask you, and this is a spontaneous question. He wasn't, I haven't prepped Matt for this. Uh, what was the most striking part of that interview for you? There were a lot of interesting stuff. I mean, his, uh, you know, how he, he had a plan for a, a graduate thesis about the monetary transmission mechanism they ended up not doing because uh, he, you know, I guess he was a little vague on exactly why, but I guess he found some girls in Europe that were more entertaining than, you know, <laughs> doing, doing exactly studies, right. doing study on the girlfriend, LSS. A girlfriend, a, a, sorry, a, right. a girlfriend, my apologies. Uh, but, you know, it's an interesting topic in terms of the difference between, you know, having a lot of small banks or a few big banks and, uh, it would have been interesting to, you know, first of all, I don't think that's a well-known thing that he was he was considering that, and it would be very interesting to have seen what his answer would have been. Right. Uh, yeah, I know that the whole interview had, uh, it was interspersed with anecdotes like that uh, that were sort of quirky and charming. He uh, himself has a kind of wry sense of humor as well. So anyways, go listen to that. Go to Alphaville. Go to ft.com forward slash Alphaville uh, for the show notes, for the transcript. We're really happy to have recorded that one, uh, Amy and I. So Alpha Chatterbox, check it out. Subscribe, rate us on iTunes, et cetera, et cetera. And now let's get to today's show. On to today's agenda, Matt. One person, one guest, and that's it. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes you only need one. It was a good one. It was a good one. Guy DeBell, he is the assistant governor at the Reserve Bank of Australia. That is the country's central bank. Um, He's in town for the FX Code of Conduct, which we'll tell you about. Uh, He's also the markets committee chair at the Bank for International Settlements. Yes. Yes. Okay. I think. And and a regular reader of of, uh, FD Alphaville, so... And a, and a former DJ. Yes. Which um, we, we'll get to that as well. We will get to that. Uh, okay, here we go.
And joining us now in the New York studio, Guy DeBell, uh, assistant governor at the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia, in town for the FX Code of Conduct. He is, of course, the chair of the Markets Committee at the Bank for International Settlements. Guy, thanks for being here. No problem. In an earlier profile, uh, you told a journalist that if you weren't a central banker, you would have been a music DJ. Yes. What happened? <laughs> yeah, that was a clearly a bad career choice. <laughs> you get seduced by economics? No, no. I was trying to combine the two of them for a, a while, uh, but in the end, uh, uh, economics won out. Pays better. That's used true. To pay, used to pay better. Used to pay better. Yeah. Okay. Before we get to your reason for visiting New York, uh, let's talk a little bit about the Federal Reserve, okay? Here in the US, uh, the discussion about the extent to which the Fed should take into account global concerns, uh, the impact that its policy has on other countries, capital flows, asset prices, things like that, usually gets uh, the following response from Janet Yellen or from other people in the Fed, which is that we take into account the impact abroad, but mainly because it might have redounding effects in the US. But in terms of its effect for its own sake, right, that's like your problem. I guess I'm curious to ask somebody who works at another foreign central bank, what your view is about the Fed and whether or not uh, it has a big impact on the Australian economy, whether it can be mitigated, if so, uh, and just the extent to which the Fed should be taking into account cosmopolitan considerations. Uh, so does the Fed have a big impact on us? Yes, it does, always has. And that's nothing particularly new. I'm not sure that it's any bigger or smaller than it has been, at least for my central banking career, which is a couple of decades now. So we take that into account. We know that it has a reasonable impact on most particularly on our exchange rate, but also on our asset markets more generally. Um, but that's just one of the, you know, that's a fact of life. And so we sort of take that one as given. Should they take more account of the rest of the world? Uh, I mean, I get where they're coming from. They've got a domestic mandate like we do and like other central banks do. And so Given that, it would be hard for them to be explaining that they're doing anything different because they've got to take account of the rest of the world. I completely understand that uh, explanation. I think what's interesting is there's a greater sense now of sort of some global financial cycle. We don't really understand it, but sort of the work that uh, Helene Ray and others are doing about the effect of uh, you know, U.S. rates on the rest of the world and on the way that capital flows around the world. You know, I think we'll see where that goes, but I'm not sure that that necessarily leads to the Fed needing to take more account of that. But I think we just don't understand that as well as we might. I would say in Australia, we've always had that sense that our financial cycle has been somewhat dependent on developments here, um, and it's in, you know it's good that people are now actually doing some uh, greater work into that, but. As I said, I get where the Fed's coming from. They've got a domestic mandate. You know, that's what they've got to explain themselves to Congress is meeting that domestic mandate, not saying, well, we didn't do this because of concerns about what it might have on the rest of the world beyond the fact that that has an impact back on the US. Yeah, I guess you, you kind of uh, answered my follow-up question already, which is about the uncertainty embedded in all this. Um, you mentioned Elaine Ray. I think her point was that what we used to think of as a monetary trilemma uh, is actually just a monetary dilemma, right? You can have an independent monetary policy or you can have free uh, capital flows, but you can't have both. Is that right? Right. Yeah. yeah. The the traditional view was that if you had a floating exchange rate, it could basically pick up the slack. But uh, she came to the conclusion that that's not 
as true as people thought that even if you do have floating exchange rate, that you still can't maintain monetary sovereignty if you have an open capital account. I don't go to that extreme. I think we st- we have a floating exchange rate have had for uh, since eighty eighty four, and I think we have independence in setting monetary policy. That doesn't mean that our that that our, we're not affected by what happens in the U.S. But it's not like we, we are, we're completely dependent on that. I mean, we've had interest rate cycles which have moved in opposite directions from those in the U.S., including over the past decade. Um, so I still think we have monetary sovereignty, but it's just that there are a bunch of factors which are which are going to affect that, which come from outside the rest of the world. And U.S. monetary policy is one of those big ones. Um, but you know, there are other ones. In Australia, uh, is there a different debate going on than the one in the U.S. about the extent to which demand shortfalls are just more generally uh, managing the business cycle, uh, whether the responsibility, the primary burden for that should fall on the central bank or whether fiscal policy should also play a big role. Uh, so my boss, uh, Glenn Stevens, who's about to finish up, talked on exactly that point no more than a month or two ago and you know made the point globally as well as locally that there is some you know a case for fiscal policy to take up some of the slack. I mean, we're still in Australia in standard macro territory. So we move interest rates up and down and they're not at zero. Uh, so in that sense, we've still got a fairly normal macro policy debate taking place. But even given that, you know, there is still, we think, scope for fiscal policy to do do something. Borrowing costs are pretty low. It's probably the odd infrastructure project out there, which could probably be worth doing. <laughs> Certainly a lot of infrastructure projects in this part of the world, which are worth doing. I landed at JFK Airport. Yeah. <laughs> drove it, had to drive in from the airport don't to, to be, the don't city. Don't be polite about uh, it. Listen, we, we want to get that know. message out I'm too. guessing there's a rate of return greater than uh, one and three quarter percent over yeah. 10 years to be had by in infrastructure spending there. Yeah. Uh, Matt, something you uh, like to wonder about is uh, how to conduct monetary policy uh, in a, an open but smaller economy, right? Right. So, I mean, you know, Cardiff and I, we have a very American perspective and, and the Fed generally, as we talked about at the beginning, focuses on domestic pressures and the international side is, okay, well, the trade account is maybe, you know, 10, 20% of GDP at most. It won't move around that much. So it's not as big a deal for a country. Most of the rest of the world outside of maybe the, you know, the Eurozone and Japan, it's a very different situation. Australia is definitely a small open economy. How do you as a central banker there? I mean, your experience meeting other central bankers, how, how is it different um, setting monetary policy and being a central banker in this sort of situation compared to the way it works from, say, the U.S.? So nowadays, I don't actually, now that the Fed has discovered the rest of the world, I don't think it's actually such a big difference as it might have been uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago. You know, so the trade side of our, uh, uh, in Australia is only 25, 30% of GDP. So not that much different from the U.S., but we've been aware for the last couple of hundred years about the rest of the world. And, and I think the way that most manifests itself actually is through the exchange rate. So we are very cognizant of the fact that the exchange rate is a major transmission channel for monetary policy. I think the Fed, at least through what they've been saying, is now more aware of that now than might have been the case in the past, where basically, as you said, it's sort of regarded it as a closed economy. But I would say it most manifests itself. I mean, we spend a lot of time thinking about the exchange rate doesn't mean we have any greater idea about where it might go, but at least we think about the effect of exchange rate changes on both inflation and the real side of the economy and have done so for uh, a long period of time. And the effect of those exchange rate cha- uh, changes on you know how long it's going to take to pass through to inflation, how big is that pass through going to be, how big are the sort of effects on the real economy depending on how long lasting 
exchange rate change is likely to be? Those are the sort of questions we ask ourselves all the time and have been doing so for quite some time. I want to get your take on something that Paul Volcker said to us over in our sister podcast, the long form Alpha Chatterbox. Um, I was surprised to hear, given his role in ending Bretton Woods, that he still has a preference for something that replicates at least the more stable parts of Bretton Woods. So he he said clearly that you can't go back to the literal rigidities of Bretton Woods, certainly not the gold convertibility and not maybe the precise fixed exchange rates, but that uh, having a system of stable exchange rates, maybe within like limited bands, um, would probably be better than the system we have now of free-floating exchange rates. Uh, and I, I think what he was getting at was that under such a system, you'd have kind of enforced discipline of monetary policy, which would be a little bit less independent, but you wouldn't have sort of wilder swings in inflation or deflation uh, in any one country because you'd need it to be fairly consistent to enforce um you know, those exchange rates. Um, and you also wouldn't have uh, either um, the kind of wild swings in capital flows, and you wouldn't need all these kind of financial products that you have now, hedging instruments, swaps, things of that nature. I guess I'm wondering what your take is on that and whether or not you think that it's just way too late to try to hash out uh, a system like that. I don't think it's too late. I'm not sure it actually worked with all respect to okay. Volcker. Sure. Uh, I mean, from our point of view, the float, we regard the floating exchange rate as one of the best shock absorbers. And does it overshoot at times? Yes, it does. But so we tr- we've tried all systems of exchange rates, uh, uh, and we think that the floating exchange rate works the best for us. Now, maybe given our size, that's an easier thing to say than if I'm uh, if we're a large economy. But I do think that yes, exchange rates are prone to overshooting, but by and large, they do the job that they're supposed to do. I don't think the exchange rate regime has much of an effect on capital flows. So I think capital flow, I mean, capital flows are actually, I would argue, more what are driving the exchange rate rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. And whatever system, even if you try to impose some sort of stability in exchange rates, I still think you're going to have the capital flows there and they're going to be highlighting the strains in a more rigid exchange rate system very quickly. I guess you'd uh, still have big speculative attacks too if the message yeah. wasn't credible I mean, enough. Yeah, I mean, well, we had EMU, right? And that was uh, that was a fairly large bound around that. And did it impose discipline? Ultimately, no. And, you know, was it prone to speculative attack? Yes. And there were always those, you know, every once in a while there'd be a recalibration, particularly in Italy. And, uh, you know, I don't think that worked that well. So I do think that uh, sort of a floating exchange rate regime, you know, it's a bit like democracy. It's not necessarily ideal, but it's probably better than the alternatives. Uh, You gave this speech in Beijing last week where you talked about some of the uh, more turbulent experiences that Australia had uh, after capital account liberalization in the early 80s. Can you just uh, take us through some of the lessons that Australia learned? So there was one of the best examples was there was a bunch of Australian farmers who went out and borrowed in Swiss francs unhedged. This was in just after the exchange rate floated because the interest rates were low. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we had a big depreciation against the uh, Swiss franc, against everyone actually, and they got blown out of the water. And that episode actually got everyone, got a lot of people used to, well, this is what happens with a floating exchange rate. Painful for the farmers, but... Uh, actually was a fairly salutary lesson. And so subsequent to that, the concept of hedging became very prevalent in Australia. Mm-hmm. So most uh, or a lot of uh, Australian uh, foreign currency borrowing, of which there is a reasonable amount, but it's all hedged. 
or, or at least there's a very conscious decision about whether to hedge or not. Some of the mining companies don't hedge because they've got a natural hedge, but it's a it's a question everyone asks if they're undertaking offshore borrowing. And so, you know, there's a very good understanding now from having learned the hard way about uh, the importance and value of of hedging your position. Speaking of, you know, commodities and hedging and exchange rate risk and capital flows, I mean, this seems like it all kind of piling in on, on this question. There's a interesting article uh, today in, in the journal about how the People's Bank of China sort of seems to have been reconsidering its earlier steps towards liberalization of the exchange rate regime and going back more to the old style of, you know, they announce it in the morning and say, this is where it's starting and you can move in that band and, and that's it, as opposed to kind of getting its cues from the market. You know, what what is your view? What's the view in Australia of how that whole you know, liberalization process is going and, and what they, you know, should be doing or maybe could have done differently? Um, well, I'd say the liberalization process is still going and it's been gradual. And I think gradual is actually being sensible because most people who haven't gone gradually, including ourselves, that didn't necessarily go all that well. That doesn't mean you're going to make every step going to be the right step. Um, but I do sen- get the sense that liberalization is still going. I mean, the other thing to bear in mind, they've come a long way in a fairly short period of time, even though they have been going gradually. I mean, I think in terms of what's been going on this year, I mean, you've had some pretty large swings in the US dollar, coming back to what we we're talking about earlier. And given the sort of overall goal of maintaining some sort of stability in their trade weighted index, when they've got a large swing in the US dollar going on on a day by day basis, then you know that's a difficult calibration exercise for them. So I think you've got to put it in the context of what's been going on in the first four or five months of this year in, in terms of trying to work out what they're going on. But my sense is they're still heading down that path of gradual liberalization, notwithstanding the, the stuff which has come out in the last 24, 48 hours. But you know, it's a difficult process and you've got to manage it in an environment where there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a decent amount of volatility in, in global markets. I mean, the other thing which I think is interesting, if you look at the capital flows, at least, you know, it looks like that their, uh, their need to intervene has dropped off a lot in the last couple of months. So you've had movements in their exchange rate, both up and down, which hasn't obviously seen them having to do a lot in the market themselves. Australia uh, does have, though, if not a unique, almost a unique business relationship with China, and that extends to the capital account liberalization part of it as well. Swap lines uh, between the two central banks. There's a clearing bank, uh, an RMB clearing bank uh, in Sydney, and uh, the Australian dollar trades directly with the uh, renminbi. I always pronounce this wrong. RMB. <laughs> RMB. <laughs> Let's go with RMB. I guess I'm wondering what lessons you guys have learned and is this serving as maybe a model for how uh, China can liberalize uh, with the rest of the world as well? I don't think I'd hold ourselves out as a model. Okay. Sometimes I'd hold ourselves <laughs> out as a salutary lesson okay. uh, as what not to do. Okay. Uh, I, mean, I mean, uh, the Chinese authorities have studied what happened in Australia just like they've studied what happened in other countries. And so we've had over the last decade or so numbers of delegations from the PBC or SAFE come down and have a look at what uh, our experience has been and I assume similar visits have happened to elsewhere in the world so you know as I said some of the stuff we've done we've done all right some of the stuff we didn't do so well and I think they've had a look at that and tried to learn from that I think the other thing to bear in mind is that they're doing this where they're when they're already a large player in the global economy so that's something we haven't really seen before this is not some two-bit country on the end of the world like ourselves doing a bit of uh, financial liberalization. This is one of the larger 
at least macro players in the world and increasingly financial players in the world doing this. So, you know, it's just on a different scale to anything we've seen before. So there are lessons you can draw from what others have done before, but, you know, they are in somewhat uncharted territory. And I would say that, you know, pretty much everyone else who's gone down this path has got it wrong at some point or another and, and suffered the consequences. If they're able to get this done and do it right, then that will be a first. Now, they've done plenty of things which are a first, so it's possible that this will be the first. But the idea that there won't be some missteps along the way, and you know, I think it's unlikely. And as long as those missteps are containable from the rest of the world's point of view, that will be good. Good enough, at least. Yes. Right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, as we said at the top of the show, uh, you're not just assistant governor for financial markets at the RBA. You chair the markets committee at the Bank for International Settlements. You're here for the uh, global code of conduct in FX markets. What do you hope to accomplish? Yeah, so the global code comes out of the fact that you know there's been the odd bit of uh, misconduct in uh, foreign exchange markets over yes. the last <laughs> few years, um, and that, you know there have been code of, codes of conduct in the various FX centers, uh, but obviously that hasn't worked as well as it might have. Uh, and part of the reason why we're looking at developing a global code is actually because FX is a global market, it makes sense that there would only be one global code rather than six or eight of them, which is what currently exists. So one of the points of the exercise is to pull all that together. There are also areas which aren't necessarily covered as well as they might be in the existing codes, particularly around sort of trade execution, uh, the way you ha treat your client and around e-trading, which is now a lot more prevalent uh, than it used to be. So there were some gaps in the existing codes and also the idea of just having one global code for the whole market. Um, it's not just also a case of coming up with a global code and you know, coming down like uh, Moses from the mountain, just laying it out there and saying, mm -hmm. here it is. Uh, we're also working on uh, ways to try and get people to adhere to this better than they apparently did in the past. Uh, and so we'll have uh, a few things to say around that ways in terms of both the market sort of uh, doing that, potentially also uh, talking about ways that it might be integrated into the regulatory process. I mean, we as central banks aren't regulators, so this is not regulation. Um, but there are also things we can do on our side as central banks, at least in terms of the, uh, what we expect from our counterparties in foreign exchange markets. Mm -hmm. I mean, from central banks, we're in somewhat unique point of view that we're actually a participant in these markets as much as, uh, as I said, we're not a regulator, we're as much a participant as anything. And we care about the exchange rate because as we were talking about earlier, it's an important part of the transmission of monetary policy. Mm -hmm. In terms of actually negotiating something like this with all these different parties, like some countries have bigger FX markets than others, right? Or they facilitate trading in FX mm. markets. I guess I'm wondering how that process goes. How do you smooth things over? Uh, That's why you get an Australian to tailor things, <laughs> <laughs> to mediate transatlantic disputes. Right. Uh, uh, how did that process go? Uh, particularly if you have an Australian chair, it means that the Australian doesn't get a lot of sleep. Um, <laughs> but uh, Logs a lot of miles. Yeah, or yes, or and both. Um I mean, I think it's useful actually to get, you know, there is some different perspectives around the world. And actually, one of the advantages of this whole process is actually being to flesh out or th and thrash out some of those different perspectives and reach a common understanding. The other thing I should point out is that this is not just the central banks doing this. We are working with the market on this. So there's an, a, we have a group of 30-odd uh, market participants, 
um, headed by David Puth of CLS, and they're working alongside us in terms of coming up with the text and you know going backwards and forwards on that. So it's very much a joint public-private exercise, which means it allows us as central banks to understand where the market's coming from and also allows the market to understand where we're coming from and where we would like the market to move to to the extent it isn't already there. So it has been very useful to hear how you know, different perspectives, both in terms of geography, but also in terms of where you sit in the market, because on our market participants group, we've got people on the sell side, the buy side, platforms, some of the newer sort of e-participants in the market are there as well, and, and, and corporates. And so they've all got quite different perspectives and trying to get something which works for everyone and works for us as central banks, as I said, in terms of where we think the market should be, uh, has been an interesting process. You know, one thing I was struck by is you saying that the cases of, of misconduct in the FX market are pretty, or have been relatively well covered. I mean, and, and you also mentioned central banks care about this because you're market participants. I'm, I guess I'm wondering, have there been situations where those have intersected, where central banks have been you know, on the wrong side of a misconduct situation, and that's part not, of the motivated this? Uh, no, not that we're aware of, at least. Um, but no, that's not part of the motivation. This is actually as much because as it, we care about the FX market as an important market uh in a particularly in a global world as we were talking about earlier and we need it to function properly i suppose what we do care about is that following on from those misconduct cases you've seen uh the market structure is changing partly a result of that and partly a result of technology and also there's uncertainty into the in the market out there as to what is acceptable practice it's fairly clear what isn't reasonably clear what isn't acceptable practice but it I think there's a need for there to be an understanding of what is acceptable practice so the market can you know, function as well as it might. Because at times there have been concerns about sort of illiquidity uh, in the market and that the market not functioning as well as it might. And so part of the motivation for this is that it's not because we've been on the wrong side of misconduct, is but just to try and get the market to move to a better spot. Uh, we've only got a little bit of time left, but uh, we want to do a speed round with you where we just say a topic and you give us your initial impression, maybe a bit of back and forth, but the emphasis is to keep me moving. There's only three of them. Okay. okay. Blockchain, promising technology or temporary distraction? Uh, so I'm with Izzy on this one. I think there's a lot of hype, a little bit of substance, and it's just, you know, back in the day, we used to have people sitting there with pens writing on ledgers. This is a better you know, this is a more technologically advanced form of that. I'm still not convinced it's a hell of a lot more than that at this point. Got it. Biggest thing we should all be worried about in the global economy right now? I mean, I still think uh, China is still out there. I think the China financial liberalization, it's a big event. That doesn't mean we should be worrying about it today or even necessarily this year. But some point in the not too distant future, I think we all have an interest in hoping that that goes right. Sure. It's the one to watch. Yeah. Okay. Uh, last one. Either economist or important economic participant of some kind that you admire most or that influenced you the most? Stan Fisher. Okay. It's pretty easy. Uh, why is that? Uh, well, he was my, only just ahead of Rudy Dornbush, actually, but uh, they were my thesis supervisors at, uh, uh, at MIT. And then I worked with Stan uh, when, he was, uh, when I was at the fund uh, after that, too. What's, a, what's a, a good lesson that you learn either from Stan or from Rudy? Uh, talk straight. You know, don't beat around the bush. Both of those two are very straight talkers. Okay. This has been great, uh, but before we let you go, uh, what's your long-form recommendation uh, for our listeners? 
Yeah, so on the plane on the way over, I do a lot of reading on planes. I read a book which uh, John Doe from X, uh, the band, uh, just put out, which is a sort of roughly oral history of the L.A. punk scene. Interesting. So just come out in the last month or so. Right. Uh, so I take it you were a big fan of the global punk scene uh, in the 80s? Well, the local punk scene. Local punk scene. Okay. No, not the L.A. punk. I wasn't <laughs> no. a big fan of the L.A. Okay, punk sorry. scene. No, no, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, the, I mean, Adelaide had its, even in Adelaide, we had a, a small, but nevertheless, uh, uh, it was their punk scene. I think we were better at the post-punk. Grunge argu- arguably originated in Adelaide, not in Seattle. Okay. Just throw that out there. Quick, spontaneous follow-up. What band are you, li- are you listening to in your iPod or whatever uh, musical uh, recorder you have right now? The National. The National. Okay. Guy DeBell, Assistant Governor uh, at the Reserve Bank of Australia, Chair of the Markets Committee at the Bank for International Settlements. Thanks for coming in. Thanks very much. And that is the end of our interview with Guy DeBell. We hope you liked it. But before we go, Matt and I are now going to give you our long-form recommendations. Matt, what's on the agenda this week? So I read an interesting uh, investigative piece published by Gawker about one possible explanation of Donald Trump's hair. Uh, and it, it posits a theory that uh, there is a guy named Edward Ivari who sold these very elaborate weaves who uh, ended up basically folding his entire practice into uh, an operation operating out of the 25th floor of Trump Tower serving only Donald Trump. And they go through a one lot of- client. They, yeah, they go through a lot of potent- – I mean, it's all obviously very circumstantial and who knows if it's true, but it's it's intriguing. And, you know, there, there are little bits of it that that are plausible. I mean, the, the key thing that we do know is the location of his office at one point in time and that now the company seems to no longer exist. But it's not really clear why how it dissolved. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting read. I recommend it. Hang on a second. This guy had a weave-making operation. He had one client. This, well, is, the, he this is the allegation. Had yeah. okay. He originally had a bunch of clients. Those seem to have vanished. One possibility is what if, you know, he essentially, you know, compressed the organization to serve one client who he knew could cover all of his costs in exchange for total privacy if that client were Donald Trump. Who knows? But it's, uh, you know. What is this alleged to have cost Donald Trump? At the time back when this was a publicly available service, it generally cost between forty to $60,000 for the initial creation of the hair weave, plus uh, several thousand dollars every six to eight weeks for maintenance. Oh my God. I can hear Amy chuckling behind me. <laughs> like I said, I have no idea, you know, if this is That's, the right answer or what have you, but yeah, it's, it's, it's an intriguing, it's an intriguing sure. hypothesis. Okay, cool. Uh, my recommendation is a show called Catastrophe. It's made by Amazon. Uh, you, you can watch it if you're an Amazon Prime member. You might be able to also just order it separately if you're not an Amazon Prime member. I'm not really sure. Uh, the show is uh, co-written by Rob Delaney and Sharon Horgan. Um, it's about uh, an American guy and his British wife, uh, and they live in London. It's a really, really funny comedy, but it's also one uh, that very subtly kind of gets at the layers beneath the relationship, right? Uh, and it gets very raw. It gets very direct uh, in ways that are not just funny, but also, I think, insightful. Uh, it's one of my favorite discoveries uh, of the last couple of months in terms of television. Why Catastrophe? So Catastrophe is uh, the, the name of the show comes from a famous line in Zorba the Greek, where Anthony Quinn's character 
says, uh, you know, a house, a wife, a kids, the whole catastrophe, right? And they named it after that line, which I think is just perfect. And that is the end of today's show. Again, remember to come back next week and we'll give you a discount code if you want to attend Camp Alphaville in London on July 1st for cheaper than the already, frankly, awesome steal of a price of £100. And we'd love to see you at Camp Alphaville. Give us some feedback. You can contact us at 917-551-5012. That's a U.S. number, country code plus one. You can email us at alphachat at ft.com. Matt is at M underscore C underscore Klein on Twitter, and I'm at Cardiff Garcia. Rate us on iTunes and give us a review. It really does help other people find the show. And then finally, thanks to Amy Keen, producer and editor. We don't need a code of conduct here on Alpha Chat because Amy keeps us in line. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.